Last time on Post Reports. Hrvishka was a leading proponent of racial typology. He was single-mindedly obsessed with collecting bodies and body parts for the Smithsonian Institution. Had you ever seen the brains? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're in jars. The Sarah family is a well-known family in the Sami homelands. Uh, nice to meet you, girl, uh, reporters. <laughs> okay, let's see. This meeting is recorded. Should I press got it then? Oh, no, I don't think you have to press. Oh, you don't have to press anything. anything. No, it's just letting- This is Martha Sara Jack. She's a 77-year-old retired nurse and social worker. She lives in Wasilla, Alaska, about 45 miles outside of Anchorage. Claire and I first reached her over a Zoom call. I mean, do you have pictures of Mary? We have pictures of Mary. Um, I could also send those to you, you know. Wow, yeah, yes, I mean, please. A little girl. It's Just kind keep... of hard to see her in that picture. And then we have really nice pictures of her uh, in Seattle. And, and we have pictures of her mom and dad, her mother and her father. That's incredible. I mean, I know that we're just meeting you, but we feel like we're we know Mary in a way. We've been thinking about her. We haven't seen any photos of her before, and so this is a really incredible discovery. Martha is Sami, an indigenous people of Norway, Finland, and Sweden, and other adjacent areas. She's also the first cousin of Mary Sara. That's Sara. S-A-R-A, without the I that we initially thought was a part of her name. While investigating the brain collection at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History, we found records showing a doctor had removed Mary's brain shortly after her death and sent it to the museum. Martha and her sister are the closest living relatives to Mary that we know of. We tracked down Martha nearly a year into our reporting, and we told her what we found. She was so blonde, was almost white when she was little. She said she was just like an angel. You know, she was just really, really a very nice person. Despite never having met Mary, Martha knew so much about her cousin from family stories. But when we revealed to her how Mary's brain was taken to the Smithsonian, she was shocked. We didn't know anything about, well, mom and them didn't know Anything about the Smithsonian Museum harvesting her brain or doing whatever they did, I mean, it's not like she was an orphan. She had a mother and father who doted on her. I mean, they doted on her. I just can't imagine anyone cutting into her. I can't. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Tuesday, August 15th. I'm Nicole Dunka. And I'm Claire Healy. Today we find out who Mary was. And we'll hear what the Smithsonian said about its collection of human remains and the racism that allowed that collection to happen. My goal is 
You never erase history, but you help people understand what that history tells us about the Smithsonian, it tells us about the way we treated people, and it should be a guide to make sure we never treat people that way again. After that Zoom call with Martha, we knew we had to meet her at her home in Wasilla. Hi. Hi. Oh my gosh, hi. So nice to meet you. Thank you so, so nice much for welcoming wow. us to your home. Uh, Nicole and Claire. Yes. Okay, this is my husband, Fred. Nice to nice meet to you. Me. Martha Sara Jack's family immigrated to Alaska from Norway. Like many of the Sami people in America, they had come here as reindeer herders. This is Mary Leah. She's my oldest brother's daughter. When we arrived at our home, we were greeted by the extended Sara family. Martha had gathered so many of her family members for this moment in her living room. We were introduced to her children and their families. I'm Claire. Nice I'm to Chris, uh, Martha's son. Oh, great. Thank you and I'm for coming. I'm Martha's daughter. Nice to meet you. I'm my youngest. I have three kids. She showed us around her house, which was filled with mementos from her family. Photographs of cousins, great uncles, great aunts. And then, and then this one right here is uh, Dad and his brother Morton. You can't see it, but they're inside of a reindeer corral. Though Mary had died before she was born, Martha had keepsakes from Mary all over her home. Um, Mary would make doll clothes, and my mom would make baby clothes. There were these tan doll booties made of reindeer skin, fastidiously stitched together by Mary. And these are one of the little doll booties that Mary made. Martha's mother was actually best friends with Mary. But my mom would always tell me she was very soft-spoken, very dainty, ladylike. She showed us a yellowed newspaper clipping from 1933. It was about how Mary went to Seattle for her mother's cataract surgery. There, Mary fell ill and died at a hospital while her mother was on the boat back to Alaska. The headline read, Arctic mother regains sight but loses girl. Martha said she just couldn't believe that Mary's parents would give the Smithsonian permission to take her brain. And we couldn't find any records to suggest they did give consent. I realize there's millions of stuff that the museum has. And what bothers me the most is that knowing that she had two living parents, that they didn't ask them, you know, if they could study her brain, or maybe, you know, notify them that, hey, you know, we took her brain, you know, for scientific reasons. No, they didn't. They just snuck and did it. You know, they did it because, you know, they felt they had the right to do it, and that's wrong. They don't have a right to desecrate another person's dead body, you know? That's, it's barbaric. At one point, Martha showed us a family history book that included the details of the lives of all of her relatives. It was all handwritten, and Mary had her own page. Here it is. It's messy. There's Mary Sarah, her birth date, her death date. 
and little history. That's the North Grove Sanatorium, Seattle. That's her place of death. That, that's just what I copied from her uh, obituary. Oh, you can put the date now. You have her death certificate. Yeah. When we first learned about Martha, it felt like a revelation. We had been searching for the descendants of Mary Sara for months. And suddenly talking to Martha, Mary wasn't just a number in an archive anymore. We finally had the chance to know her story. We were starting to understand not just how she died, but we also had the chance to understand how Mary lived, to know her family, to know the people who loved her and still mourned for her. We have got to stand up for things that are wrong. And this is something that's wrong. And if our institutions in America aren't big enough to say, oh yeah, that we're sorry, we've changed our policy, we won't do it again. I subscribe to the Smithsonian Magazine and I love it. Now, I just feel like, good grief, they're not. They're not the people that I thought they were. The center of the Smithsonian Institution sits on the National Mall. What's referred to as the Smithsonian is actually a collection of museums and research institutions. They have art galleries, a zoo. But the place you probably think of when you think of the Smithsonian is the building in the shape of the castle on the National Mall. That's where we were scheduled to interview Lonnie Bunch III, the secretary of the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian said that now, 255 brains are held in their storage facility in Maryland, most of them sitting in several large metal containers. But for years, they were stored on the National Mall at the Natural History Museum. Thank you so much. Please, my treat. Nice to meet you. My pleasure meeting you. I'm okay. How are you? Okay. One, two, three, four. Is it okay now? Is that good enough? So we went to the castle, going in through a side entrance. There was a big meeting room near his actual office, so we set up there. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're really busy, um, but we're really um, we're really glad we'll have you to talk about this because we think it's a really important subject, and we know you I agree. think so too. Bunch is the head of the 20-plus museums and even more libraries and research institutions that make up the Smithsonian. They call themselves the largest museum, education, and research complex in the world. Bunch started as secretary of the Smithsonian in 2019, the first historian to hold that position, as well as the first Black man. We also knew he had spent his career creating space for the Black community in these kinds of hallowed halls of history that had often erased or exploited them. So we were curious to hear how he would react to our questions. Last year, the Smithsonian announced a new ethical returns policy, which would formally allow them to return objects that were taken without consent. We started asking questions about the brain collection not long afterward. Then, at the beginning of this year, the Smithsonian restricted access and research to human remains. And about a month before our interview with him, Bunch issued a public apology for the unethical ways that the Smithsonian had collected human remains in the past. In that statement, he also announced the formation of a human remains task force so they could figure out 
how to best move forward with the remains they still have. The task force has since had three meetings. We were told we had 30 minutes with the secretary, so we got right to it. You recently apologized for the unethical ways that the human remains have been collected. Why did you decide that was important to do at this moment? Well, I'm a historian, and so I look at the past and recognize that there are times we've done things that we wouldn't do today. And I think it's important to recognize that for me, these are not remains, these are not specimens, these are people. And I wanted to say that the Smithsonian, like many other institutions, did things that were acceptable at one point, they're no longer acceptable. And I wanted to apologize formally to say that we're no longer that institution. How much did you know about the brain collection when you were here? Nothing. Nothing? Absolutely nothing. What I knew is that we had done work with human remains. As a historian, I know, for example, that the work of those that study... That stopped me in my tracks. For us, it felt like a genuinely surprising answer. Bunch is at the very top of an American institution that he himself called the glue that holds the nation together. That reminded me of an early conversation with Lori Burgess last July, right before she became co-chair of the Natural History Museum's Department of Anthropology. I revealed to her how many brains I read were in the collection at the Smithsonian. She said, I don't believe we have that many. In other words, a lot of top Smithsonian officials had been in the dark about the specifics of this collection. You've been here since 2019, 2023. Four years exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why do you think it? Why do you think it did take four years to kind of well, make this partly task because force? this wasn't my only focus for four years. Got us through a pandemic, mm-hmm. George Floyd. So I think that basically, when issues come up and I ask questions about them, then I can move forward on this. And as I learned more about human remains, and I ask questions about what's the percentage of people that have been repatriated through NAGPRA? What's the percentage of non-Native remains that are at the Smithsonian? So these are things that I began to ask, and as I began to get the answers, I decided that we had to move forward in in a way that I think is reasonable and will allow us to basically be a different institution. Bunch brought up that he is primarily a historian. He's not an anthropologist, and he didn't previously have close ties to the Natural History Museum. It's not part of his field or expertise. We also started asking him about the idea of repatriation. If the return of these brains was a priority for the Smithsonian now that they were aware of the scope of the collection. It's worth pointing out that the Smithsonian began its repatriation efforts over three decades ago, after Native American communities pushed them to do so. So what did Bunch have to say about the progress of the Smithsonian's repatriation efforts today? We first asked whether the repatriation office had enough resources to handle returning all the human remains in their possession. When Congress first passed the law requiring the Smithsonian to inventory its Native American remains, they were required to put $1 million toward the effort. Now, more than 30 years later, that budget is $1.5 million. I think that the key is to recognize that we will evaluate 
what that office does and determine are there additional ways that it can move more expeditiously, are it going to need more budgets. This is issues that we're looking at. I don't have answers to that now. But the goal here, in my mind, is to move as quickly as we can in a way that is um, careful, considerate. Ultimately, I would love to see many more remains returned to communities, to tribes, to individuals. That's my goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some experts who have seen how many cases, uh, repatriation cases, the Smithsonian has done, you know, yearly. They say at the current rate, it could take 170 sure. years to go through all the human remains. Ooh. Are you happy with that number? What do you think of now, that number? Why do you number? ask a question like that? You know, Corey, I've, I've made it really clear. I've made it really clear. You know, the goal is to move this as quickly as we can. That's the goal. I don't know what that time is, but that's the goal. Why do you think it took us, for example, to find Mary Sara's family? Just I, I, I have no idea. I have no idea how mm-hmm. you found them or why. Or I mean, it, it, what, it was her name was in the files, actually. But I'm just saying, you know... The Smithsonian is known for its research. You know, it's one of the biggest sure. museum. It is the biggest museum complex and re- research institution in the world. I mean, why has it taken so long for some of these named individuals to be found? I think it's important to remember what research is. Not all research is done in this arena. So, you know, it's really what was what some scholars are focusing on. And basically what I've tried to do now is shine light on this. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully that'll get us more research. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there is a repatriation office, and they are looking specifically at this. Yeah, but that's but they were looking specifically at Native, you know, and so this is really saying, how do we make sure that we get our arms around the totality of it? We asked the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum a similar question. What was their response to Mary's family feeling shocked that the Smithsonian didn't reach out to them first? What did they think about concerns from families like hers that they may never get contacted because there's no law mandating it. Even though the Natural History Museum didn't contact Mary's family first, they say that in recent years, they've been paying more attention to remains from communities outside of Native American tribes. Besides the logistical hurdles, they said they also have to consider, quote, significant ethical considerations when notifying families, and that they're taking care to ask outside experts and community representatives about the best ways to approach families so they don't cause further harm. But we also wanted to know something else. What was the plan to return the remains to Black American families, given that so many brains were taken from Black people in the D.C. area? Sorry, um, so many of the repatriation policies, only Native American families, tribes, are notified of these remains. And so, as we mentioned, a, a large number are from D.C. and their families would never have an indication that the brain was taken in the first place. What is your response to people who are reading this article and thinking, how can I know if my relatives remain? Well, I mean, I think that's the policy, right? That you want to figure out what's the way that we can allow people to know that these remains are tied to their families. Some of that we do know. There's evidence, there's, there's documentation, others there isn't. So I think the key is to sort of look at, all right, if the goal is to return these, how do we do that? What's the best way? Is it really finding individual families? Is it doing a kind of honorary mass grave, right? You know, for example, is it taking remains and burying them in Arlington Cemetery, giving them the respect they reserve that way? So I think the, the question for me is, what's the best way forward? I know that 
if a brain or remains of a family of my family member of mine, I'd like to know. And so I think the key is that I would love to see us have a way to do that. Can you assure families that research isn't being done on their relatives currently? I can't reassure anything until I get to policies. You know, I'm not going to say what's, what until I look at what's being done, what's possibly being done. I think that that's really only the right way to go. And then there's the legacy of Alice Herdlichka, the anthropologist who was the architect of the Smithsonian's human remains collection. He was a longtime believer in white superiority and had ties to eugenics. He had a massive influence on the museum. We were really curious to know how the Smithsonian would confront that. And as an institution, what more needs to be done to address Herdlichka's legacy? Basically, my notion is that we need to figure out how we make clear who he was, but also who that whole field of scientific racism, what its impact was. And basically, my goal is you never erase history, but you help people understand what that history tells us about the Smithsonian. It tells us about the way we treated people. And it should be a guide to make sure we never treat people that way again. There are thousands and thousands of people whose body parts are in the Smithsonian's collection. Many of these people's families have no idea that parts of their ancestors' bodies reside in museum storage. So it will largely be up to the Smithsonian's researchers to find their descendants, to reach out to their countries and communities. That is, if the task force decides they should. But we also realize that it's not an impossible task, that we were able to find descendants with the resources we were able to pull together. Okay. Thank okay. You. Thank you. We spoke with Bunch for almost an hour. When we left, Claire and I both felt some small sense of gratification that after a year of reporting, we had been able to directly put our questions to Bunch. And we were reminded again of an earlier conversation with Lori Burgess. Our collections are large, and sometimes it takes conversations like this. And then we were like, oh, yes. And then the more work I did on the brain collection, the more I thought, okay, we just can't, this, we, need, we need a hiatus here. Of course, knowing it and acknowledging it is only the beginning. It's unclear what the Smithsonian's next steps will be. What is clear, however, is there's a lot left to be done. After the break, our search for Mary Sara's final resting place. We'll be right back. As part of our reporting on Mary Sara, we also visited Washington State. We were hoping to learn more about the journey Mary took from Alaska to Seattle and what happened to her when she arrived. We also wanted to find her final resting place. The trip revealed a lot more. Nice of you to have us. So you flew from Washington today? Oh, no. Rachel Twitchell Justice is 66 years old. She's a retired dental hygienist. And she's one of Mary Sara's distant relatives. What do you think the Smithsonian should do in situations like this? Well, I think they owe it to the families of everyone to try to reach out and contact them and 
let them make that decision. To me, I just know that it just seems so disturbing. You know, people aren't people aren't a zoo. When we first shared with Rachel that Mary's brain was taken by the Smithsonian, the news hit her really hard. You know, and their body parts are, you know, that's sacred in a lot of cultures. And it just seems that I think that some cultures would view them as not being able to be in peace if their bodies were not whole. It just seems, I don't know, it just seems so cruel. Of Mary's relatives we spoke with, Rachel still lives in Washington State. So does her son, Justin McCarthy. Like Martha Sarah Jack, the two felt, very deeply, the wrong that had been done to Mary. Justin is himself an academic. He works at the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle. He told us about how it had been a goal of his to work at the Smithsonian at some point. He'd been to the Natural History Museum. He had stood in the same storage facility where Mary's brain is currently held. But he never knew that her remains were there. Justin was already aware of Herdlichka. He was aware of what Herdlichka had done to Native American communities and that he was the driving force behind the Smithsonian's collection of body parts. I would like his physical anthropology collections to be dismantled. What he's done to indigenous people has been pure evil. It's interesting that he has a legacy and these people don't. These remains don't. I know part of his legacy is uh, now infamous, but he has a legacy and he stole these other people's legacies. That there needs to be justice for people who were victimized by the Smithsonian and continue to be victimized by them housing these collections. That the story shouldn't be on Herdlitzka, but rather on these people who ended up there and how we can tell their stories and celebrate their lives. For Rachel and Justin, it was clear to them what the Smithsonian should do. Return Mary's remains to her relatives, who could then bury them and honor her. As we met Rachel and Justin in Washington, we still had at least one unanswered question. Where was Mary actually buried? Even though Mary's family had records and photos of her, they had no idea if she was really buried in Seattle. We'd searched online for her death certificate, and eventually we found it on Ancestry.com. It noted she had been buried in a Lutheran cemetery, but it didn't provide the name or location. So we started calling Lutheran cemeteries in and around Seattle, where family members believed she had been buried. And then, after we arrived in Washington, I made a call to the Evergreen Washelli Cemetery in Seattle. A woman working there told me that she had found Mary. I remember hearing the words, she's right here. It was like she was telling me the weather or the date. 
But for me, it was earth-shattering. When we arrived at the cemetery where Mary was buried, it was a cold, windy day. The cemetery was mostly empty, except for us. We met Rachel and Justin there, and we also had photographer and videographer Jovel Tamayo with us. So we're probably the first relatives to visit her in about 100 years. The graveyard was one big open field. The marked graves had flat, mausoleum-style markers. As we got closer to Mary's gravesite, we found a large, grassy area surrounded by trees, with one big tree looming over all the others. So is it unmarked? Wow. There's nothing here. We got information from the cemetery office to find out where Mary was buried, but she had no marker, no headstone. Instead, moss grew over her gravesite. The first thing Justin did was bend down and start touching it. Justin said the moss was fitting since the lichen Sami people fed their reindeer herds in Alaska was commonly called reindeer moss. What's it like mourning someone you don't already know? This was probably the first time anyone in Mary's family had ever visited her. Maybe the first time anyone at all had visited. Hoping that we get a headstone or some sort of marker and then of course uh reinter the the remains so you could tell the way they processed this they wanted to do something they wanted to get a headstone for her they wanted to bring mary's brain back and bury the remains here I had wanted to find her for a long time, ever since I first saw her name in Smithsonian Records. This 18-year-old woman whose body had been so violated. Now her grave is identified, and I was honored to be there for this moment. These brains are people. To be able to connect with a family like that and have them bring us on their journey, it was incredibly special. To them, Mary's history had been overlooked, the way that indigenous people have felt throughout history. They were part of these communities that sometimes felt actively victimized and erased by institutions in the United States. While we were there, Justin picked up a stick and removed it from her grave. Can't change what happened, but we can change how she's honored and respected. A month after we visited this gravesite, a Natural History Museum official said they would return Mary's brain to Martha Sarah Jack, Mary's closest living relative who we had met earlier. This fall, Martha hopes to bury Mary's remains at her gravesite in Seattle. She asked that the Smithsonian pay for the burial and the costs of getting a headstone. The cemetery told her that it could cost $6,400. Officials rejected this request and said that they had never paid for burial costs in the past. Before we left the Lutheran Cemetery, 
Justin pulled out his phone. He used it to play Sami Yoik's, songs he said Mary likely heard growing up. These are traditional, what are called Yoik's, um, a Sami kind of music, uh, kind of chant. It was the last thing he offered to Mary before leaving. Music from their people. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Rena Flores with production assistance from Lucas Trevor. It was mixed by Sam Baer. It was edited by Monica Campbell and David Fallis with additional editing by Sarah Childress, Lucy Perkins, and Casey Shaper. Thanks to Ariel Plotnick and Aaron Weiner. Regine Cabato, Alice Kreitz, Magda Jean-Louis, Monica Mather, Nate Jones, and Andrew Botran of The Washington Post contributed to this report. Alexander Fernandez, Nami Hijikata, Solen Guarinos, and Lalani Pedris of the American University Washington Post Practicum Program also contributed. If you want to know more about our reporting on the Smithsonian's collection of human remains, check out WashingtonPost.com. We'll be releasing more stories throughout the week, including an illustrated narrative about Maura, the indigenous Filipino woman from the 1904 World's Fair. I'm Nicole Dunka. And I'm Claire Healy. We'll be back tomorrow with coverage of the Trump indictment from The Washington Post.